Hey, you're listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. On September 12th, Joe Biden announced an executive order on advancing biotechnology and biomanufacturing innovation for a sustainable, safe, and secure American bioeconomy. Among other things, this executive order stated that, quote, we need to develop genetic engineering technologies and techniques to be able to write circuitry for cells and predictably program biology in the same way in which we write software and program computers. Unlock the power of biological data, including through computing tools and artificial intelligence, and advance the science of scale-up production while reducing the obstacles for commercialization so that innovative technologies and products can reach markets faster, end quote. In other words, this policy calls for less regulation and testing for quote-unquote innovative healthcare products based on new unproven technologies, particularly gene editing and gene therapy, and supercharging the effort to make AI central to the American healthcare system. But there's actually a lot more going on in this executive order. So this executive order, perhaps unsurprisingly, got little play in mainstream media and only slightly more in independent media, where many of those who did cover it claimed it would usher in an age of transhumanist technologies. Is such alarm warranted? And what is this executive order likely to mean for the average American? And what exactly is the bioeconomy? Who are the major players in it? And who is it meant to benefit? Joining me to discuss this and more today is Derek Browse. Derek is a journalist, activist, and speaker who writes for The Last American Vagabond, as well as his own site, The Conscious Resistance. His most recent article for TLAV covers Biden's executive order in one of the best and one of the only uh, articles out there on the topic and shows how this edict is just one part of a much larger and broader agenda. So thanks for joining me today, Derek. Welcome back to Unlimited Hangout. Yeah, thank you for having me back, Whitney. My pleasure. So let's start by tackling some of the vocabulary in this executive order. I don't think most people know what bioeconomy or even biomanufacturing exactly means. Uh, so how do how does the executive order define these terms? Do you agree with those definitions? And what do you think this um, this means in terms of the economic impact it's likely to have for Americans? Sure. So the executive order is titled Advancing Biotechnology and Biomanufacturing to for the Sustainable, Safe, and Secure American Bioeconomy. So they fit all three of those words in, in one phrase there. And like you said, I don't think most people have even come across these terms. Um, according to the White House's definition, which I think is generally correct, I mean, you could get a little more broad with it, but they describe it as the economic activity derived from biotechnology and biomanufacturing is referred to as the bioeconomy. Um, and of course, they they state that COVID, uh, the COVID crisis helped accelerate the push towards biotech and biomanufacturing. Um, and they talk about it in terms of, quote unquote, life-saving therapeutics and vaccines and all that stuff. But yeah, that's kind of the, the general idea of it, economic activity from that. And of course, biotechnology, people are maybe more familiar with if if not yeah. in name and in sense of genetic engineering, genetic modified foods, like that's probably the most familiar aspect of it to people. Obviously it's bigger than that too, but that's kind of like biotech companies. So you get like Syngenta, Monsanto, those types of companies. Um, and then biomanufacturing has like a, another component. They, they have their own definition and I kind of looked further and found some other definitions for that. And that gets into the idea of using biological systems, which itself is pretty broad um, to develop products, tools, and processes at a commercial scale. Biomanufacturing utilizes those biological systems, whatever they may be, to um, produce commercial biomaterials, biomolecules. So, I mean, obviously the theme here is like life, biology, using yeah. that. And they're talking about it in medicine, food, 
industrial applications. And I'm sure we're going to get into it, but it gets into some other areas where they start talking about biomass and like what exactly is biomass and how we need to have this circular bioeconomy, which we've been hearing that circular economy phrase for a while, which, you know, at its, at its kind of um, least uh, nefarious uh, end is things like reduce, reuse, recycle. And then, you know, the, it, it goes to a whole other area, though, that I think is where some of the concerns come in and, and you know, what we're getting into in this article. Right. So like you touched on earlier, so a lot of people have been focusing sort of on the healthcare, I guess you could say, angle of this executive order. But as you sort of touched on, this is a lot bigger than just healthcare. So they call for this to be like a whole of government approach. But some of the departments mentioned specifically in this executive order aren't just like HHS, for example. But I think HHS and like ARPA-H, we can talk about later, have a big role here. But, you know, they also mentioned uh, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Energy, yeah. the Department of Commerce, DHS, the Department of Defense. I mean, it's pretty big, uh, the push for all of these um for biotechnology and biomanufacturing to play a central role in, in these departments going forward. So I think um, it maybe at, so, at some point, I don't know if we want, you want to do this now or later, we should probably talk about the implications of this for agriculture because it talks about food security and sustainability. And you mentioned just a second ago, right, you know, biotechnology companies, you mentioned Syngenta, you know, which is uh, most people are probably most familiar with Monsanto, which is now Bayer Monsanto. But that's basically, you know, what this is calling for. Um, pretty concerning stuff. So, um, yeah, let's, I, I'm down to get into that. I mean, I think that you you bring up some good points here by um, calling attention to the different departments. And for one, as you said, and as the executive order says, we need a whole of government approach, which, you know. I think we should take them at their word that they're going to try to use <clears throat> every resource available to push in this direction. Because, you know, when you not only when you look at the executive order, but when you look at some of the action, other actions that I wrote about that the Biden administration took just this month, earlier this month, it's clear that um, the bioeconomy isn't just going to be some maybe kind of like niche topic, like, I don't know, like NFTs or something like that. It's going to be something that involves every area of our lives i think at least that's the way they intend it in the coming decades and they definitely intend based on this like you the departments you mentioned they also mentioned the department of state of course the department of defense and then department of agriculture department of commerce so there there's clearly, clearly going to be a lot of different applications of this so-called bioeconomy biomanufacturing and yeah when they're talking about agriculture i would guess that most of most of our audience is familiar with, um, you know, the revolving door that's been going on for decades between um, Monsanto, Syngenta, those companies and the yeah. U.S. government. You know, that's been happening for, for decades now. So you, if you already kind of acknowledge that and are aware of the close relationship between the biotech industry as it relates to genetically engineered food, genetically modified foods and the government, well, I think that doesn't really bode well either for this push into the bioeconomy and the potential for what it might entail, which uh, I'm happy to get into later. I have my some of my speculative ideas that, you know, I can't prove at the moment, but I think, you know, I have some ideas about, and I'm sure you do as well, about where this is all going, especially in terms of biomass. But I do think that in general, the idea of we need to go to a bioeconomy. And it's not just coming from the Biden White House. It's coming from the United Nations. It's coming from the World yeah. Economic Forum. There's different... Um, U.S. politicians pushing it, and I'm sure we could go through different governments around the world and find similar, you know, pushes in this direction. And it all's just—it's it, just timed so perfectly with the 
potentially post-COVID world that we're we're in now, right? I mean, it just seemed, and again, we see the, the call towards COVID showed us this. COVID showed us how this is necessary to push the whole of government into this direction. And there's also discussion of, uh, you know, biological sciences, biotechnology, biomanufacturing to enhance biosafety, biosecurity. Um, and they're also going to be investing millions of dollars um, and they're seeking more than they got right now. So, I mean, this is this is not just a small piece of the overall agenda that we're, we're kind of facing. Right. So there's a couple different things to talk about then. I guess one would be the UN side of this, how, the, how all of this ties into the the SDGs and the alleged response to climate change and all of this stuff. Um, and then I guess the other side of it is what you just brought up, how COVID is being used to justify this and uh, the push into healthcare. So I guess maybe um, <laughs> before we get too away from that, maybe let's let's go back to the the discussion of, um, yeah, I guess I would say the most controversial part of this executive order that I read in the intro that a lot of people have been focusing on, um, discussing, you know, concern about uh, transhumanist uh, technologies being institutionalized mm -hmm. and things like this um, because of this executive order, the claim again about developing genetic engineering technologies for writing circuitry for cells, <laughs> you know, and basically comparing, you know, that to software and, um, you know, program development. Um, and, you know, it's weird that this happens around the same time that the FDA sort of frames the, um, latest booster drive for COVID-19 vaccines, sort of in those same terms. Yeah. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure a lot of people probably saw that then. I forget exactly what they said, but it was something like time to get your, you know, software update yeah. and all this stuff. Um, and that's not how the immune system necessarily works, but they're trying to basically see to a narrative with people who still listen to them anyway, um, yeah. that, uh, to get them to look at the human body in this particular way. And I think that's, um, that's pretty telling. So let's talk about some of the people that are going to be behind this particular aspect of the implementation of this executive order. So you have, well, we just mentioned the FDA. I'll say really quickly that the new head of the FDA hasn't gotten really any coverage at all. Um, I was hoping to write about him, but uh, earlier in the year, but you know, I had a baby and then <laughs> had a book. So, you know, I guess two babies, you could, you could argue. You've been a little busy. <laughs> yeah. So I was a little short on time, but uh, Robert Califf is, is the guy that's in charge of the FDA now. Mm -hmm. And he's one of these revolving door guys between the FDA and, you know, big pharma, I guess you could say, but not really big pharma because he's going, uh, he's a big guy at, or was a big guy at, you know, Google's health, um, division mm -hmm. and one of the top advisors at Google for their healthcare push. And so, you know, you have people tied up with that to some extent, having been involved in warp speed and some of that, I know that you wrote pretty extensively about Monsef Salawi, who was, um, I think he had to step down before it actually finished because of like harassment allegations, but yeah. uh, he's the guy from GlaxoSmithKline's vaccine division. And he was on the board of the Google, um, GlaxoSmithKline joint venture Galvani Bioelectronics, which is, um, you know, focused on basically creating quote unquote medicines that modulate your neural activity, like change and modify your nervous system. Creepy stuff. So anyway, that's that's kind of the wheelhouse that Robert Califf was involved with, but also in a really big way, wearables. And I know that you and I um, yeah. in our work over the past couple of years have talked a lot about wearables and 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 what that means. And so um, I guess the other um, side of that is this group called ARPA-H uh, that was created relatively recently, but is sort of a longstanding 
agenda, I guess you could say, um, of the national security state and, and big tech and some of these actors that really, you know, are essentially the same at this point. So I sort of see Robert Califf being in at the FDA as the guy who's going to rubber stamp all the stuff that ARPA-H is going to produce. So when we see uh, in this part of the executive order, them talking about um, reducing the obstacles for commercialization, that to me speaks to Robert Califf's role at the FDA of getting rid of regulatory barriers for testing um, and all of this stuff so things can get on the market faster. And I see the, you know, advance the science of scale up production, uh, the, a company I wrote about recently that's making the RNA for Moderna's uh, updated booster shot uh, resilience definitely falls in that category. But a lot of these, um, the developing um, of the technologies talking that the, they're talking about here and the artificial intelligence angle and all of that is likely to come from ARPA-H. So um, you've written about ARPA-H and it's um, new head who's, uh, I can't pronounce her last name because there's like one vowel in it. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I couldn't have figured it out either. <laughs> yeah, so I was. Uh, I I I did a podcast like yesterday, and I tried to pronounce it. I was like Weggersen or something. I don't really know how to say it. Maybe you have a better. Uh, no, I'm just I, gonna call her Renee. Yeah. Okay. So we'll just call her Renee. Yeah. So Renee's in charge of ARPA H, and her appointment to being in charge of ARPA H actually coincided with this executive order. So, can you tell us a little bit um, about ARPA H, what it's designed to do? Um, who Renee is and uh, why her employer uh, is pretty central to all the stuff we're talking about. Yeah, actually, before that, I want to just comment on what you were talking about, about Robert Califf. I appreciate oh, sure. you bringing that, that in there because I do think that's a, a really crucial component. And I'm glad that you you mentioned that. And, you know, just um, to kind of cement further what you were already saying, that like the background that he comes from, as you know, is, is like you were saying, Google, Alphabet Inc. And then the subsidiary Verily Life Sciences. But I, which I know that I pretty sure you wrote about it and I wrote about briefly when I, we were doing the research back in, I think, 2020 about um, the uh, Operation Warp Speed and everything you were just talking about there. But specifically, um, when they started to announce these appointments for Operation Warp Speed, you could already see the connection between the Googles and you mentioned Galvani Bioelectronics. Yeah. And I think that's going to be important too. I just want to point that again, because Galvani Bioelectronics, like, you know, we're hearing bioeconomy, biotechnology. There's been some uh, recent, um, not executive orders, but statements. I can't remember which city it's escaping me right now, but a recent a mayor or a governor came out in support of bioelectronics. I want to say New York saying like, we're going to fund bioelectronics. They didn't mention Galvani specifically, but again, I think this is a whole nother area of research that ties into this, that people are going to be uh, come familiar with. And I just want to uh, quote briefly from this article I wrote at that time, describing what bioelectronics is. And the reason I, I wanted to stop to mention this is because actually this is the report when I did a YouTube video about this, that actually got me kicked off YouTube. Oh, uh, yeah talking about the fact that bioelectronic medicine, what it's talked, what it's focused on, or at least what they claim it's focused on, is tackling chronic diseases by using, quote, miniaturized implantable devices that can modify electric signals that can pass along nerves in the body, including regular or altered impulses that occur in many illnesses. So that's like what this guy's background is coming from. You know, Galvani Bioelectrics, Verily Life Science, Google Health, like that's at least one of the fields that his, you know, his companies or the companies he's been working with have been involved in. And as you're saying now, that guy's at the head of the FDA, which I doubt there will be much resistance to any of these projects. So I just wanted to make, you know, make that kind of further clear to everybody. Great. Thanks. Um, yeah. And then as far as uh, Renee and ARPA-H, 
Um, I'm well, again, I'm, I'm proud to be in, uh, in the same club as you, Whitney, when it comes to this, because as I shared recently, when I published this article, um, cause I was originally like most people just like, okay, there's an executive order. Let me do a write up about this. But then the more I dug in, it's like, wait, hold on. They didn't just do this executive order. There was a summit about biotechnology yeah. and bioeconomy. They appointed the, you know, the, the first director of, uh, the advanced research project agency for health, ARPA H, um, which you were writing about. Last year, last spring, you were writing about, you know, I wrote about it in 2019, too, actually. So, see, you've been on that. And then I was following that up with uh, just something told me to, like, pay attention to Ginkgo Bioworks last year. I can't even remember what, you know, really triggered it initially. But it was maybe it was just the fact that they call themselves uh, a life design company or a bioworks company that, you know, they just all that whole field of research, it really caught my eye. So I was already kind of pay attention to them. And um, if people were following both of our work, well, then they would have known that ARPA-H had been announced and that soon there would be a director. And if they'd seen my article, they might have some indication that, you know, maybe we didn't know 100% it was going to come from Ginkgo Bioworks, but clearly you could suspect it was going to come from that industry uh, because those are the people pushing and driving. And again, this is another area where you got the revolving door between industry and government. So um, with all that said, Renee comes from Ginkgo Bioworks, and that's the company that I was focusing on because, uh, again, they they call themselves Bioworks company. They call themselves uh, Life Design, and their CEO is pretty blatant, Jason Kelly, about discussing like the what they do. I'm just going to read this quote that I put in there. Um, when he actually attended the White House's summit, he said, today, Ginkgo is the largest designer of synthetic DNA in the world. What does that mean? It means you go on a computer, you type ATCGGG, you hit print, and a piece of DNA gets printed out of our labs in Boston or our partner companies like Twist in California. We then take the DNA, we put it into the genome of a cell, and here's that language again, like installing an app on your phone, and it makes the cell do something new. That's our business. We do that as a service for customers. So, you know, one thing is I think that, like we were pointing out a couple moments ago, I think we're going to continue to see the use of this kind of, or the normalization of this kind of language about upgrading your software and installing an app and, you know, all these kinds of things they want, you know, clearly they want people to look. Uh, That's the framing. I think they want people to internalize and understand, but I don't think it's necessarily accurate (laughs) for what's going on here because people are basically being an experiment. Yeah, exactly. For this unproven genetic editing technology that, you know, not even talking about mRNA, gene therapies, mm-hmm. or quote-unquote vaccines, or whatever, you know, if you're talking about things like CRISPR, study yeah, exactly. after study, and I'm sure you've seen this, uh, that has come out about CRISPR shows that it's not as precise as people sold it as being, mm-hmm. and it's basically, you know, very likely to give you cancer, basically, by, you know, cutting your DNA in the wrong place, and, exactly. and Uh, preventing DNA repair and all sorts of other problems. And, you know, there's infinite study, not infinite, but numerous studies at this point, uh, raising alarm bells about CRISPR. And so the idea that this executive order is pushing for technologies like that to not have regulatory barriers so they can be put on the market faster. This is really alarming stuff, but, you know, they've normalized that type of activity um, at the federal level so much with COVID-19 that it's, it's very mm-hmm. possible if they sell it right to, you know, the people that, you know, buy these types of narratives still, um, you know, they'll be able to get away with it. It seems like, what are your thoughts? No, I think you're right. I think you're hundred percent right. And you're also correct that like, just because they're using that language, doesn't mean you're turning in, you know, that, that it's accurate in the way they want to use it. But I do think it is, um, 
that we will continue to see it because they they do want people to and i think this is where the idea of the transhumanism aspect comes in obviously they were talking about like altering dna like that already gets into you know changing potentially what it means to be human but even in the language they want people to and i think it's because they know how much how obsessed uh, we are as a species with digital technology, with the latest phones, with the latest computers and whatnot. And so maybe in well, their some mind, of us. <laughs> yeah, not all of us, right? Some of us more than yeah. others. Um, some of us, you stay out all night and uh, camp out in front of businesses to get the latest phone, right? Some of us just use the technology. But I think the point is they, they want to try to normalize and condition people to look at themselves like, oh, you're just a phone to be upgraded, you're an app to be, you know, downloaded software, etc. So anyways, getting to uh, back to Renee, our friend Renee here with the uh, difficult last name, she's coming from molecular biology, bioengineering background at Georgia Tech, um, and then a just host of DARPA programs. So anybody listening yeah. to this program, probably familiar with DARPA. But I mean, she worked at DARPA's biological technologies office, she managed their genetic engineering and gene editing projects focused on biosecurity. She's worked with uh, like at least half a dozen DARPA projects that I found and then worked also for another DARPA inspired agency, the Intelligence Advanced Research Project Agency, and then advised ARPA-E, which is the ARP Advanced Research Project Agency for Energy. So the government has clearly come to this woman and got her quote unquote yeah. expertise or knowledge in several different areas, not only directly working with DARPA and all their projects, but then working with two other agencies that are sort of DARPA influenced, and then now obviously being appointed to the head of uh, this new agency that is obviously inspired by DARPA. Yeah. So if I can comment there really quick, um, first of all, that agency, one of those DARPA inspired agencies you mentioned, uh, the intelligence ARPA. <laughs> yeah, that's like the CIA's ARPA, IARPA, for people that mm -hmm. don't know. Um, and they they had a representative on this National Security Commission on AI that I've written about uh, for TLAV and, and other places. Um, but specifically at DARPA, you pointed out that she worked at the BTO office, which is the Biological Technologies office. And the longtime head of that office is a guy named Jeffrey Ling. And he was the guy tapped by this guy named Bob Wright, who was the guy originally sharpening around the idea for HARPA, later renamed and, and created as ARPA-H. Uh, Jeffrey Ling designed that program um, originally. And uh, for people that don't remember, um, HARPA was originally being marketed to something very different. So when the, the Biden administration came out with um, ARPA-H, they acted like it was their idea, not, you know, from the Trump era and, and framed it as a way to cure cancer and cure Alzheimer's and all of this stuff. Yeah. But when it was being pitched by the Trump administration, it was mainly Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. And, um, and then this Bob Wright guy, who is, a, I guess, a former executive at NBC Universal uh, and had some sort of relationship with Trump from The Apprentice, I think, or something like that, is how they knew each other. And the idea th then, at the time, the idea of uh, HARPA, their first program was going to be called Safe Home, I think was the acronym. But basically what it was about was data mining American social media activity and then using an AI to screen it to identify early warning signs of, quote, neuropsychiatric violence to try and prevent um, mass shootings before they can happen. And this was coming at a time when there was like the El Paso Walmart shooting um, and a lot of other uh, mass shootings sort of happening in the span of a couple weeks. And not that long before the El Paso shooting, William Barr, who was an attorney general, basically said there was going to be some sort of event that was going to galvanize people around um, yeah. pre-crime policy. 
for those that remember that, uh, I wrote about it at the time, and then he actually created a pre-crime program before he left uh, the Trump administration that's still in effect today called DEEP. So um, for why were I so I, I wanted to bring that up for people because you know ARPA H or HARPA is a lot more than just you know curing cancer and gene editing and all of this stuff. Um, it's definitely you know they have a lot of programs under it. But anyway, the guy that designed HARPA at that time when they were pitching those programs is the same guy that Renee uh, worked under, and you know oversaw a lot of these other. Um, gene editing projects because the biological technologies office is one of these, um, I guess you could say offices at DARPA that's focused on quote unquote convergence, just sort of like the, the bringing together of man and machine. Um, a former DARPA director who I've written about a lot because she leads uh, the Welcome Trust DARPA called Welcome Leap, uh, Regina Dugan. She describes it as uh, fixing the, the quote, quote unquote mismatch between humans and machines. So that's basically what BTO is about. Wow. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, um, you know, deeper dive on that office. And hopefully that gives some more background for those who are curious about where Renee is coming from and the type of agencies. I mean, each of the, honestly, like if there was a time and, and the energy for it, each of these different projects that she is involved in and for anybody else out there who's a researcher and wants to do, help do some legwork for us. I mean, I, I would, I would guess that each of these projects she was involved in are probably worth a dive into to see, you know, what did they, what were, what was she researching? What, what did the projects, you know, conclude? Who was she working with? Those kinds of things, because <clears throat> they might give us some uh, more insight into what she's going to do now as a director. Yeah, well, I don't think, you know, <laughs> I think we can guess um, more or less. I think we see where it's headed though, right? Yeah, because, I mean, she's basically, a, you know, a point person, I guess you could say, uh, for the people sort of deciding the directions these things go in. Um, and basically, you know, as my work on this type of stuff is shown, it's, it's a lot of them is, are basically the top guys at Silicon Valley and top guys in the national security state, uh, with a major role from, from the intelligence community, like NQTEL is all over this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the CIA, you know, is, is all over it too. Boston connection as well. Like I, I noticed when I was, um, researching this and looking up you know because they really they haven't decided officially where they're going to headquarter arpa h and there's um there's all these people in boston which obviously you got boston dynamics you got uh, ginkgo bioworks is headquartered there there's a lot of that nexus there um that are trying to pull for them to to base it there and then apparently there's some uh the tech companies that are fighting to get arpa h headquartered in texas and then i think there's one other state that's fighting for it so i think that you know Ew. like he's, he's why would you want it <laughs> that's how i feel about it i think that should tell people though like <laughs> the places that are calling for it the people that are calling for it so i mean i'm i'm from texas originally and places like austin have become like the new and even houston they're trying to call it uh what are they they trying to call it the silicon bayou of the south or some some Silly the Silicon Bayou. Wow. Because yeah, okay. they're, they're inviting all the tech companies. Yeah, I know, but that's a reach, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if they'll get it, but it's just, you know, to add to the point that if you see, wherever you see this, the company ending up, whether it's in Texas or Boston, I think, you know, it, it'll probably give us some insight into, you know, who the influences that are going to be around. Because like I said, Ginkgo Bioworks wants to keep ARPH close to home, which isn't surprising since, you know, their former or their current VP is going to um, go over there and work with them. And I'm sure there'll be some some nice lunches and dinners for them to get together and discuss how they can shove their projects through. Uh, and again, like the, the CEO of the company that she's coming from is saying they 
Our, their job is to print out DNA in a lab, partner with other people, put it in the genome of a cell, like installing an app on your phone. Like that's, you know, that's the kind of things they're promoting. And of course, I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but the Biden uh, announcements also, they, they frame everything like this is going to help fight Alzheimer's and cancer. They talk about the moonshot program, which I think that's a whole nother, there's some research to be done there too as well. Um, but yeah, they want to frame it like this is all about helping fight diseases and all that. But really, as you were pointing out a moment ago, it's part of the overall biosecurity state that we've seen coming in in recent years. Yeah. And another thing I want to point out, though, is that the guy that was supposed to be really influential in ARPA-H, I think the reason they um, had to wait so long to put Renee in charge is because uh, Eric Lander had to go. And so Eric Lander was the top science advisor uh, to Biden. And he was running, I guess it's called the Office of Science and Technology within the White House. And so he was going to play a major role in shaping ARPA-H, but he was forced to resign, I think, earlier this year uh, over harassment allegations again. So I guess he and Matsif Salawi are two, <laughs> two peas in a pod in that sense. But Eric Lander, as I've uh, written about before, uh, was Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein funded, uh, has has is on record praising eugenicists, uh, played a major role in the human genome project, which if you look into the history of that was itself created by a guy named Walter Bodmer. Um, and he dreamt up the idea at the time he was a member of the British Eugenics Society, because at that time, the British Eugenics Society in the 80s was still called that. They waited until 1989 to rename themselves the Galton Institute. And uh, Galton is named for Francis Galton, the guy that invented eugenics. So it's not really that much of a of a change there. So, you know, eh, it's a, it's a little concerning, especially when you consider some of the stuff that um, John Klesak and, and also myself have written about that um, the guy that coined the term transhumanism was head of the British Eugenics Society, Julian Huxley. So, you know, there's a lot of... Um, overlap there. So how do you, um, you mentioned in your article that people like Patrick Wood, for example, who uh, was on my podcast relatively recently, uh, described this executive order uh, saying it would institutionalize eugenics and transhumanism. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I, t I do tend to agree. So, I mean, I was starting the article out, not necessarily that I, you know, didn't believe what Patrick was saying, or, and I also quoted Jason Burmis in another report. Um, but, you know, I wanted to kind of play a devil's advocate and say, like, let's see what this is really about. Right. Because I think sometimes in the broader community, people see terms, especially when it comes to science, see terms that maybe they don't understand that sound scary or weird or whatever. And, and then we can maybe rush to make assumptions and things like that. So I wanted to take, OK, let's really look at this and see if the the the, the concern or the fear that people are expressing when they see bioeconomy, whether they know what it means or not, uh, is warranted. And I think that the deeper you dive into this, and as you were just pointing out with the connection to eugenics with a lot of this studying of DNA, studying of the human genome, I mean, all of that stuff, it, it goes it goes back to the eugenics movement, population control, you know, and then trying to even the idea of like trying to breed out undesirables and things like that. I mean, so much of this reminds me of the movie Gattaca. And if anybody, as, as if you've never seen that or if anybody hasn't seen that, I encourage you to watch it. Um, if only for just getting a taste of what the world that I think these folks are headed for. It's the world of, and again, I don't think the movie shows probably the worst parts of it, but they have a world where people can um, genetically engineer their babies for, you know, oh, make sure you get the right eye color and the right hair color, but then also 
if you have the money, you can make sure your babies, you, you take out the parts of their DNA that are going to give them a predisposition to alcoholism or predisposition to, you know, um, immoral behavior, whatever the heck that means, right? And so, of course, there ends up being a classed society where there's the people who are normal, old school humans and then the people who are starting to like genetically engineer, genetically modify themselves to be faster, smarter. Those are the people that go to space. Those are the people that have like the power and the rest of us are kind of like the plebes, you know, doing janitor jobs or doing menial work. I really think that that's kind of an indication of what these types of companies see. And again, does that mean that every single person involved in this research is a eugenicist? I mean, I, I would wager not. Uh, I mean, maybe so it could be, but I, I would think maybe that there are genuine people who think that their specific niche area of research and science is contributing to something good without recognizing like the larger push towards this sort of eugenics mindset of altering, messing with DNA, synthetic biology, bio manufacturing, and, and not just like uh, bio manufacturing as the um, executive order talks about like writing ourselves like cir circuitry. I think that's, you know, a more about what this is about is getting people used to that and yeah it could be like if you got the money you can go um oh well let me point this out i, I forgot this i listened to a talk about renee or from renee while i was writing this article and it was called engineering gene safety and in that talk she actually discusses transhumanism at some point and she says something to the effect that we're moving into the age now where when you run into somebody on the street you're going to be the question you ask them is going to be what genes are you on you know, what genes have you upgraded or up downloaded today, you know, mm -hmm. to change your eye color or to make you faster or what, you know, that's of course in their utopian best case scenario version. And, and if you trust putting their technology in your body and all that, but so she, you know, she's even like outlining in her vision, the woman who now is the head of this new agency that she believes that's where the world is headed, that we're going to be upgrading and downloading and changing genes. Like we do apps, cell phones, you know, or clothes or things like that. Yeah, so um, talking about how you sort of see this vision playing out and how you describe Gattaca, you know, I haven't seen it because I don't really, like, <laughs> watch TV or movies anymore. I, like, don't have time. Um, but uh, I, I recall this article that came out. Uh, we can put it in the show notes. It's from uh, B the BBC, but it's from several years ago. It's from 2006. And uh, the subtitle is, Humanity May Split Into Two Subspecies, as predicted by H.G. Wells, an expert has said. And the first sentence is, this evolutionary theorist named Oliver Curry of the London School of Economics uh, expects a genetic upper class and a dim-witted underclass to emerge. Um, and he basically says, uh, the descendants of the genetic upper class would be tall, sim, healthy, attractive, intelligent, and creative, a far cry from the quote-unquote underclass humans who would have evolved into dim-witted, ugly, squat, goblin-like creatures. So, uh, you know, and he's citing H.G. Wells here. So H.G. Wells is from the same pool of British eugenicists. Yeah. I mean, people, most people think of him as a science fiction author. He's a lot more than that. So I'd encourage people um, to reevaluate uh, that guy. But basically, um, you know, this is something that this group um, sort of predicted you know, uh, maybe a hundred years ago or so. And, you know, will their ideological descendants um, use this type of technology to make that a reality? It seems really possible because it seems like the quote unquote underclass uh, sort of you described in the, the whole Gattaca thing, the people that don't, um, you know, do this stuff. We're being conditioned to uh, eat bugs <laughs> and do all sorts of 
you know, other stuff that's sort of blurring the line between human and livestock. Yeah. You know? Um, so, you know, my concern is, you know, are they going to start, you know, they're going to genetically engineer maybe the elite in one direction, but the genetic engineering promise that they're offering the rest of us may lead us in a very different direction. Absolutely. No, I get where you're going. And, and this is sort of what I was like talking, hinting at earlier with like, I have some speculation about where this is headed. Um, cause they also talk about biomass, right. And, uh, biomass by defined by them or just you know these bio um bioproducts can be anything from human blood to uh soil you know grass animals it, like biology right so living products um and they discuss in some of the papers i was reading some of the discussion of the circular bioeconomy getting to a point where we could and again, in the best case scenario, it, what it is, is things like human manure. For anybody familiar with permaculture and things like that, you've heard of human manure, taking human waste, and then you let it sit for a certain amount of time and you can repurpose it and use it in the garden. It's really good for plants and for the soil and things like that, right? That's a form of, you could say that's part of the bioeconomy, taking a biological product waste and then repurposing it in a circular way and doing something good with it, right? That's what they want people to believe that the whole thing is about. But obviously, there, there's a lot more going on there. And I think that we really could get to a, um, obviously, there's the concern about the bugs, you know, you're going to, people are going to eat bugs and and things like that, that whole agenda being pushed. Well, that's part of the, that would be considered biomass, right? It's a living entity. So that could be part of it. But I also think with the combination of two things, one, more states and places um, recognizing the right to um, compost yourself when you die, which again, like I think that, hey, if you own yourself, you should be able to do what you want when you die. But just right. that yeah. becoming more trendy, that idea combined with this pushing of biomass could lead to a point where maybe the lower classes are taught like for the good of plant the planet or to reduced waste, we need you to repurpose your body, your biomass, not only for soil or something like that, but potentially to something like Soylent Green, to something like that being a food product, you know. Hey, it's or, not that that far, you know, the justification for the composting the human body is climate change. And there's that scientist exactly. in Sweden that got a lot of mainstream media play being like, cannibalism is the solution to climate change because he's not insane or anything. So um <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I mean you put those two things together like a sort of normalization and a talking of you it know you happen. see it popping up in articles of cannibalism and then yeah repurposing yourself while this discussion about biomass and, and when you look at what hey, man is, circular economy. Exactly. Yikes. So um so another thing I think is going on here in terms of the broader agenda. And I think you see this not just with the push into healthcare, but also the push into agriculture. I think what we're seeing is part of the longstanding agenda that I know that Ryan of T-Lab has talked a lot about over the years, which is uh, patenting all life. Because if you own the genetic sequence of something, and this has happened with Monsanto, right? Mm -hmm. And some of these other uh, companies that make genetically modified organism, you know, GMOs that are plants, um, you know, they, for, I, I think a lot of people are familiar with the tactic. Well, maybe not everyone. So I'll explain it, I guess. But Monsanto and I guess Syngenta to a lesser extent had, you know, this practice basically of, um, they would buy like one field in an area and they would quote unquote test their, um, products there or plant them there. And then, you know, uh, this is mostly for wind pollinated plants. Yeah. So the wind would carry the pollen and it would cross pollinate 
uh, with plants of the same type in a, in a neighboring property. And then Monsanto comes to that neighbor and says, okay, so your plant now has uh, patented genes, which we own. And so we're going to sue you because you're using our proprietary genetic whatever uh, without licensing it. And so uh, in the past, this has turned into uh, major legal cases where farmers have lost their land and, you know, it all goes to Monsanto at the end of the day, you know. Um, and this is, a, you know, a, a model that I think is going to be uh, replicated um, far beyond agriculture at this point. But I think, you know, the Green Revolution of the past, not about climate change, about putting Monsanto everywhere. Who were the people behind yeah. that? People like Bill Gates, as an example. Now Bill Gates has a, who I think is actually an investor in Ginkgo Bioworks, if I'm not mistaken, that we talked about earlier, yeah. um, is also, you know, has bought up a lot of the farmland in the U.S. What is he going to use it for? Small scale organic farming? It uh, doesn't seem <laughs> likely because in the U.S., uh, small scale organic farmers are being uh, punished by the federal government. That uh, Jeremy Lafredo's done some good work on that recently about how they're targeting the Amish community. Yeah. Um, so what are they gonna? What kind of stuff are they gonna use it for? Well, given you know Bill Gates' past, it seems pretty clear what they're doing. And you're seeing this push for certain types of plant-based proteins or lab-made meat, uh, all of which is going to be patented. So that's control of the food supply. People won't be allowed to produce their own food unless they have a license for it. Uh, they're taking people off the land. They're eliminating, limit, trying to eliminate basically um, traditional agriculture as it's existed for uh, thousands of years. And that doesn't make any sense in terms of, you know, if your excuse is climate change, it makes no sense whatsoever that you would do that. Um but obviously, I think their game here is is something else entirely, and climate change is just the selling point. Um, and what concerns, yeah, and so what concerns me is that you know we're going to see the rollout of AI in agriculture. We're going to see uh, GMOs galore because a lot of the stuff they they say specifically, where they talk about the Department of Agriculture in this executive order, um, they say, let's see. They say um, that the Secretary of Agri Agriculture has to assess how to use biotechnology and biomanufacturing for food and agriculture innovation, including by improving sustainability and land conservation. So that means genetically modifying a plant to use less resources, I would assume. Increasing food quality and nutrition, genetically modifying a vegetable or something to have more of one nutrient than another something like that, uh, mm -hmm. increasing and protecting agricultural yields. That's always been the selling point of Monsanto, even though it's not true uh, in practice. And lots of studies have shown that as well. And then protecting against plant and animal pests and diseases. Again, that is, um, you know, part of the Monsanto selling point as well. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned earlier, they're Bayer now. And then it says again, cultivating alternative food sources at the end. That's this lab made meat stuff. So this is patenting the food supply. And I worry that the gene editing of people stuff, what if they're going to apply that model to people and be like, oh, you know, like the Ginkgo Bioworks uh, CEO said, like you quoted him, you know, install, it's like installing an app on your phone. Uh, so if you install an app uh, into your cells, right, who owns the app? Yeah. And who yeah, owns the cell? 
Those are good questions, right? Is Monsanto going to show up and say, hey, well, the wind blew our apps into your body and now we own you? <laughs> something yeah. along those lines. You, you brought up a couple of points that I want to um, just comment on. For one, as you said, yes, Bill Gates is invested in Ginkgo Bioworks, where Renee's coming from. And specifically, and this is interesting because you brought up like his land um, ownership as well. It's his company cascade investment which is an investment mm-hmm. company that he controls so you know he tries to hide his name a little bit so cascade is the investment firm that invested in kinko bioworks and cascade is actually the same company that also owns all his farmland so you know there's a direct connection between those mm-hmm. those different you know they're investing in biotechnology bioeconomy buying up farmland uh so I, yeah i do think that that's something that you know you can see the connection there right and Overall, I mean, I think people should take heed of the, as you were pointing out a few moments ago, that the same power players that told us about the green revolution and promises of GMOs are the same people now trying to tell us that we're about to use CRISPR and all these great technologies to uh, create a whole new economy that's going to save the planet and sustainable and diverse and blah, blah, and all that good stuff. And I think that by this point, most people can see through uh, these agendas that they have. And uh, the other point I wanted to mention is that, because you brought up the, uh, the the Bill Gates investment in the meat, is the alternative meat as well. At the summit that the White House held, they had a number of different companies, including Ginkgo Bioworks there, uh, that were pretty much just, I guess, showcasing the type of projects and things they're involved in. And at first I was going to list them all because some of it was interesting, but I, I decided not to put that in the article. But one of them was this company uh, that, is working on what they called carbon neutral meat product. And it's a company called Air Protein. So, I mean, there's definitely, that's part of the agenda as well. And they had those companies there at the White House just earlier this month discussing, you know, their their push in that direction. Well, that's going to be fun when they they control all the food, won't it? And you won't be able to buy natural seeds or anything you can can produce on your own. But you'll have air protein. Thank God. (laughs) Well, you you know, like I said earlier, I think this is part of a longstanding agenda to uh, prevent people from being able to sustain themselves, prevent the ability of people to be independent of the state or, you know, these companies that have, you know, are basically fusing with the state. You know, it's, it's pretty concerning. And, you know, what's crazy too, you know, I think about the mRNA stuff, you know, people that were criticizing or asking questions about the mRNA quote unquote vaccines over the past couple of years got censored off. Right. And so a lot of the big tech companies that control the online platforms also have like Google, right. Also have big mm-hmm. investments in this space. Are they going to start censoring people that are, are critical of the bio economy or CRISPR and stuff like that down the line. I don't know. Well, I, mean, um, I pointed out earlier that my, the my final strike that got me removed from from YouTube, and I don't. I mean, it was obviously a, a strike in a succession of other things that I said wrong and I thought wrong, and I'm so sorry for. But <laughs> the, the, the final I strike was <laughs> the final strike was talking about that the injectables, the bioelectronic medicine. I think the video was titled. I mean, it wasn't even contra- It just was titled "The Future of Healthcare is Injectables," which is effect based on everything that these people are pointing at. And that was coming from studying Monsef Slaoui and uh, Galvani Bioelectronics, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of looking at Ginkgo and these other companies. It's clear that in addition to them wanting to mess with your DNA and your genes, that uh, they want you to wear things and then put things in your body. Um, I hope that most people listening to this are not interested in any of that at all. Yeah, well, I think the wearable thing, if people don't realize it's about surveilling you, but in a way that they've never been able to surveil you before. They're trying to surveil what's going on inside your body. So if you listen to people, and I mean, you know, we've talked about this in the past and other people have talked about it in the past, but you all know a Harari 
basically saying that once there's mass adoption of wearables, it's crossing the red line into what he calls digital dictatorship. And this is the guy that's helping them build all this stuff and like advising them how to build it. You know, after he says that he speaks, he, he said that in a speech to the World Economic Forum. And then he goes, maybe the people in this room can take hold of this technology so it's used well and all of this stuff. And they're all like, yeah, you know, I mean, come on, not, not cool. So, you know, they, they, you know, the people pushing this agenda know what it means to have mass adoption of wearables. They've come out and said it. So do we really want to walk into that future? I think it should be pretty clear that the answer is no. The other thing you all know, or Harari says in that speech is that it's about like surveilling your neural activity uh, so he's he he gives an example of a dictatorship and you know someone is at a speech of the great leader and they're outwardly looking happy and clapping like everyone else but inside they're angry and they will know and you'll be in the gulag the next morning because of your wearable snitching on you that's 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 the future if if this wow. kind of stuff goes ahead or at least that's what they're trying to do and so they've already advanced this to a significant degree so as i mentioned earlier regina dugan the former darpa director she set up a darpa thing for facebook that's still sort of going and the, and they developed a wristband that is able to uh read from your brain what you want to type before you type it and types for you based on your thoughts and stuff well, that's just what i've been needing exactly what I've been looking for. No, I kid, but I mean, I think this stuff is really, it, it, you know, what it comes down to me, Whitney, is like the more I think about this is that, you know, and I, this is something I wrote about in my book, How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State, that this is all going to come down to every individual who's hearing this. And as we rush right into this future, whether we like it or not, is you, we have to make choices of how we're going to interact with technology. And you know, some of us are doing that yeah. already. You know, we're saying, all right, I don't want to use any Google products, right? Well, that's one layer. But then when everybody around us starts wearing the wearables, is which is already starting to happen for exercise and things like that and monitor your heart rate. But then when it becomes implantables and injectables and then literally modifying your DNA, I mean, we are going to face the the reality that there's going to be people around us who choose to do that and who yeah. opt in. It's already happening. Yeah, it'll be weird things like your friends show up and they got a new eye color and you're like, what, you know, what's going on with you? And they're like, oh, I did this. Uh, I went to Walmart and they have this quick, you know, change your eye color. <laughs> change your DNA. I imagine that like that's oh, what yeah. these people want it to be that that simple, that like easy for people to just go up just like a cell phone, right? Go up and up, upgrade your cell phone. Well, that's what they're envisioning. I don't think like we talked about earlier, like CRISPR and all that stuff, it's going to come with major consequences i mean the mrna stuff that they're claiming this executive order was a great success and the justification for this executive order basically um obviously we're not the great success that they were touted as so i mean this other stuff i don't think it's necessarily i, I wonder though if i wonder if they could cover up as much as they you know so because like obviously we're seeing adverse reactions and injuries from the shots and, and you know things are happening and they're covering that up and they're denying that and they're still rushing forward and claiming it's the best thing ever, right? And I'm sure it, somebody's going to get a Nobel Prize for this crowning achievement. But I wonder when it comes to people, as you pointed out with CRISPR and things of that sort, getting DNA breaks and, and you know, how that affects them. Like, can you really hide that of people who are trying to upgrade their human, you know, operating system? And then next time you see them, they can't even operate or who knows what, what happens. Or, I mean, it really could get into some scary, I mean, not that we're not already, but into some really scary sci-fi dystopian stuff like, Will you be able to 100% know that if your friend or family member chooses to opt into the system, 
that they're still going to be that same person, that they're still going to be yeah. what we consider yeah. to be human. You know what I mean? Like what happens when people start doing these things and their behavior changes or, you know, there's no way for us to really know what, you know, where that's coming from. Yeah, no, I know. Well, once it gets, you know, the Neuralink stuff, like the brain chip and stuff, I mean, I don't, I don't even know how I'm going to react to people doing, doing that crap. Um, but the crazy thing is too, you know, we were sort of talking about the risk of this technology a bit, right. And how CRISPR has unintended consequences. But if you look at something like Neuralink, I think most of the monkeys and the animal trials they've done once Neuralink was installed, like died really quickly and they're still going ahead with it. It's like, I don't understand that. I, I just, I don't get it. Like, I, I don't get how that can be. That's not even a conspiracy, you know, based on some document we're not sure is true. No, it's like, that's a fact. That's real. That's been reported in mainstream. And yet there's no like public outcry to like, stop this program. We need, you know. Yeah. What freaks me out is I think that these people are so hell bent on creating this feature because for a lot of them, it's like a religious thing, mm-hmm. like the transhumanist stuff. Um that you know they're not really they don't really care how many people die they want to bring about their their vision of a they just want, they, they they're going to bring it about whether they whether we like it or not that's how they feel i think i don't think they're going to succeed to be honest no i don't because think so. you know a bunch of people get brain chips and, the, and then they die like people are going to be like i don't want the chip and so they'd have to like forcibly chip people i don't think it's going to happen um yeah. but i mean it seems like wh- why else would you not cancel Neuralink if it's killing all the animals, you know, uh, and, and that's just animal testing. What happens when you get to human trials and it's like, oh yeah, like seven of 11 uh, of the people in the trial died. No big deal. Full steam ahead. Cause you'll be able to play video games with your mind. Like that's a hard selling point, you know? Yeah. I hope that as we approach that, which I mean, it, it's right here on the cusp of, right. And we were getting new updates about the Starlink and the Neuralink and all the, the Musk programs and, and other people working on these similar things as well, that uh, people are skeptical. But I mean, as, as I was kind of joking earlier, but it, it's, it's the truth that there are a lot of people who do literally wait outside of the grocery or the electronic store for the latest upgrade of this and that. And uh, I, you know, and that's also when we have, we know in the same vein of, we know problems with Neuralink already exist, you know, already have been shown in animals. Well, we've got decades worth of studies showing that cell phones can cause, you know, uh, damage to your body. Can there's, there's a case that's finally about to go to court now after 20 years, people dealing with tumors from cell phones back in the 90s. And here we are 30 years later and there's the biggest thing ever. Everybody's got them in their pockets and their, you know, chest wearing them in their yeah, shirts and, they, and wherever they else. Have, they cause more radiation than they, they probably did in the 90s. And now we're in, you know, 5G land, at least some of us. And where I live in Chile, there's no 5G for now. But, you know, they're trying to put it everywhere. So, so I mean, I'm with you that I hope and I believe that they will ultimately fail. I, But I'm also, I think they will probably succeed in getting a chunk of the population. What I don't want to wager or guess. Oh, yeah, sure. There's going to yeah. be a good chunk that embrace this. And hopefully... As with the shots, there will be some people who may are a little more hesitant. And if people do start getting harmed, which unfortunately it seems like, you know, that is probably going to happen. I think, yeah. Um, yeah, that people will push back and say, hey, well, hold on, what are we doing here? And at that point, then maybe that's the sort of fork in the road, right? If you got the, yeah. the technocrats, these these uh, wannabe transhumanists trying to push closer to the singularity and their eugenics vision using technology and they've got some of the population but then some people start waking up and questioning it you know that would force their hand are they literally going to try to force people into that digital world or 
Uh, those of us who opt out of it, will we be allowed to continue to opt out peacefully? I think that's going to kind of be <laughs> something the future will answer for us, I guess. Yeah. So, like you know, like you said, I don't think they're going to get a succeed in getting everyone to do it. But I think, you know, the question is how much damage do they cause in the meantime? And when you think about things like genetically modified mosquitoes that are already out there, I mean, how, yeah. um, you know, what sort of damage is being done to, to, to the environment and all of that stuff. I mean, there's a whole lot of kin and worms here. I mean, we're really in unprecedented times now that they're doing all of this stuff. And, you know, I'm uh, one thing I wanted to touch on uh, before we wrap up, wrap up here, Derek, is that you mentioned in, um, in your article that some other places like the European union have implemented bioeconomy policies and over there, uh, they're, you know, expressly related to the implementation of the sustainable development goals or SDGs, uh, also known as agenda 2030. And so on, since unlimited hangout right now is doing a series on the SDGs called sustainable slavery. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about some of those justifications a little bit, um, because, you know, uh, they're basically using SDGs as one of the reason uh, or, you know, climate goals and all of the stuff as, as justification for, you know, biotechnology and the bioeconomy and all of the stuff that's discussed in this executive order. No, absolutely. And by the way, you guys are doing great work. I'm, I'm glad somebody's doing a, a like a real specific dive on the SDGs because I think it's important because, you know, some people I think still don't grasp how how crucial that is to their agenda. Um, and I mentioned earlier that the United Nations, their food and agriculture organization, they've talked about the bioeconomy. I also found that the European Union and something called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, uh, that they... The OECD. Yeah, yeah they're, they're also promoting the bioeconomy. They say that this is going to be a framework for promoting the bio, for promoting biotech to develop new products. And, and they put out this bioeconomy strategy document, which again is kind of like, I guess a whole government in the sense of trying to get all the EU uh, governing bodies involved and to focus on biological sources, uh, creating new systems that depend on biological resources. And this is what I was talking about earlier, including animals, plants, microorganisms, and their biomass. And so biomass, that could be your blood, your bones, your waste, you know, you. Um, and they, they're saying that this is about, of course, protecting the environment, biodiversity, all so just this summer in June, the EU, they published this progress report discussing how they're, you know, making some progress on their bioeconomy strategy and that they're now finally to get it, getting it developed in uh, EU member states and different regions. So it's making it clear that like this is not just happening in the United States. This is happening across the European yeah. Union. I'm sure we could look at other nations and see it as well. And yeah, it all comes back down to when you look the EU's bioeconomy strategy, it makes it perfectly clear that they see the role of the bioeconomy serving the UN Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. And it specifically says that its aim is to, quote, accelerate the deployment of a sustainable European bioeconomy to contribute towards the SDGs and help fulfill the goals of the Paris Agreement. So, I mean, they're making it clear what it's about right there. Yeah, so now that the European economy is about to be totally totaled, uh, <laughs> I wonder if they're just going to build up a bioeconomy in its place and that's going to be the focus of everything. And I sort of wonder the same for the U.S., which, you know, um, it seems like it's not going to economically collapse at the same time Europe does, maybe a bit after. But, you know, this sort of seems like to be uh, one of the the things going forward, one of the focus, economic focuses, you know, when they quote unquote build back better and all of that is going to be this type of stuff, especially if they're linking it to the SDGs. And one thing that, that Ian and I have pointed out in the SDG series is that they basically use the urgency excuse as a means to like 
force the implementation of this agenda and not look deeper into what the SDGs are like really about or who's running it, which is like central bankers and wall street bankers um, mm-hmm. and, and, and stuff like that. But they basically say, you know, the cost, if we don't implement the SDGs is going to be so much worse. And so we have to do it. Otherwise this thing down the line, we promise will be so bad. And this is coming from the people who were like the predictive modelers about COVID or, you know, who were totally wrong. And if you look at, those predictive modelers in their past, like in the UK with like foot and mouth disease and all this stuff. I mean, they're always wrong (laughs) in the limits to growth guys and the club of Rome and all that, like always wrong. Uh, Their models obviously like suck and don't work. So, you know, are we going to trust them again and uh, destroy everything? I mean, it's just mental. So basically, you know, they're, they're using people's love for the environment and nature to sell them into this uh, system. And if you're just gene editing everything, you're going to destroy nature plain and simple. And that's not even talking about the land grabs and all of the stuff that are going on that, you know, has been some of the focus of, of the series lately. But I worry, you know, what happens when some of these entities under the guise of the UN, like the Nature Conservancy and some of these other groups are doing these debt for conservation swaps, as they're calling them now, which are just land grabs. Mm-hmm. And then they're tasked with conserving this land or natural asset corporations that they've created now tasked with conserving a piece of land and they just gene edit everything on it because they say it's, it will make it more sustainable. Um, you know, this is, this is the kind of stuff going forward. And so that's why, um, you know, I think the sustainable development goals, people need to start paying more attention to it. Obviously I think that otherwise I wanted to done a series, I started a series about it. Um, yeah. you know, but there's, there's a lot going on here. About, um, just with a couple of points you said there, just for anybody who hasn't come across obviously read the sustainable development goals and get to understand that. But another term and kind of just lingo that we're seeing more and more that you were just touching on is the idea of the nature-based economy. The WEF is pushing Nature-based like, solutions, they call it too. Yep, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nature-based economy, nature-based solutions. Like, and so again, anybody who doesn't know anything about it just hears that like, okay, like, yeah, conservation, something to do with the planet, helping the environment. But that's not what this is about at all. Yeah. And in fact, in the worst case scenario, it's about, pretending like you care about the environment and putting that in front of on top of human concerns and uh, basically enslaving the people to the alleged concerns about the environment and building yeah. up all around this like idea of the green. I mean, this is like this, these are all just elements of the greenwashing that I think more and more people are becoming aware of. Totally. And I do think it's important for us to have this conversation and for you to be uh, dissecting the SDGs because um, a lot of people woke up the last couple of years to COVID-19 and they started to realize like, wow, the whole world can be fooled by faulty models and by hysteria and mm-hmm. this and that. And experts. Not so many, yeah. Exactly. Not so many people have gone back and kind of applied that same rigor of thought to, to other climate stuff. change conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I hope they do because, you know, like we mentioned earlier about the, the Green Revolution and all of that, the Monsanto evangelists uh, of yesteryear are the same people saying we have to implement the SDGs immediately to save the planet. Do you think someone like Bill Gates who went around selling Monsanto all over the world and creating a Indian farmer suicide crisis, an environmental crisis, cares about the planet? I mean, come on, people. I, I mean, well, I think I, I said this on Twitter before, but... I thought he was buying up all that land for the good of the people originally, but maybe Oh, not. you mean the farmland in the U.S.? I'm talking about when he, you know, basically forced the Monsanto debt slavery model on, on the developing world, claiming it would increase yields and all this stuff, and then it, it didn't, and it destroyed their soil and their environment and their livelihoods. You know, that's the guy we're supposed to trust. Uh, Are you telling me that like golden, 
Golden Rice didn't save Africa? <laughs> no, apparently not. Uh-oh. It was just a fluke. Well, actually, there has been some pushback locally in Africa against this stuff. I don't know if you saw, but there was um, some conference, and the Gates Foundation was, like, forced to admit that things, uh, all their previous plans failed miserably in, in, in terms of how they, they'd been selling it, like increased yields and all of the stuff and better food, wow. food security. It did the opposite, and so they just blamed climate change for it not working. <laughs> of course that's easy enough to do. yeah i know i mean what else would they do but there's a lot of pushback uh locally there so i hope you know that continues to grow because the future is local dude so and you know Absolutely. that better than anybody so i guess now that we're wrapping up here it's a good uh opportunity to give you uh you know time to promote uh, some of the stuff you do uh, in terms of solutions uh getting local some of the work you're doing um you know not just um you know in that sense but also in terms of uh, media and what you have coming up Sure. I appreciate the opportunity and thanks for having me on again to talk about this topic. And Absolutely. I do encourage everybody to read your series on SDGs and check out the, the work I did on Kinko Bioworks. Um, you know, in terms of connecting people locally, I, I agree with you 100% that the future is local. Uh, and again, you're going to see the World Economic Forum and the UN try to co-opt that language like they do everything else. Um, but in reality, it, it is important for us to be connected to our local community. And that, I mean, wh whatever that means for you, that could be like, do you have a family support system? Do you got a couple of close friends? Do you have an activist group you work with or meet with? Whatever it may be. Um, but having that support system is going to be really important because as we've just outlined here, they're, they're clearly coming after the food. You know, when I think about the different, you know, myriad of attacks we're facing, there's a few things that come to mind. It's the children. So in my mind, yeah. that's like thinking about getting them out of the state school systems for those who can afford it or have an opportunity to do so, or at the very least becoming extremely involved in your child's life. So you know what kind of crap they're trying to put in their head. Uh, so the kids, the food, of course, the food supply, the, the ability to grow food privately, individually, you know, that's, that's under attack, right? So you got kids, the food, and then of course our health, mental health, physical health. These are areas I think that are important for each of us to focus on. And maybe, you know, the idea could be finding people in your local area who have similar concerns and saying, okay, well, what can we do about protecting the kids? What can we do about ensuring we have, uh, you know, food for the future or that we know how we have some basic skills or we've got food stored or whatever things you feel are necessary. And you know, I, I can't necessarily tell anybody what's right for them. But if that's a situation you're in and, and someone's hearing this and looking for more people, doesn't have much connection to their community or family, I encourage them to visit freedomcells.org. That's freedom, C-E-L-L-S, like the cells in your body. The idea being that each group, cell, pod, hub, hive, whatever you want to call it, is individual and powerful and unique on its own, building in you know, Chile or Mexico or India or Africa or whatever. But then at the same time, that individual cell is kind of part of this larger network that has been forming the last couple of years um, all around the world. And uh, ultimately, you know, for myself and many of us involved in this, like we're truly trying to build a parallel economy, parallel system, because I, I don't see any way to stay human, honestly, by just thinking we can continue going about our lives and just kind of watching things get crazy. At some point, I think yeah, there will yeah. be to be made you know are you going this way or are you going that way right absolutely so, you know i think that finding people who are thinking in those terms and, and trying to see like you know how can we support each other protect each other etc whatever you can do is, is going to be vital so that's one thing that i'm always working on and uh is is we just recently relaunched the website for the freedom cells website so we've got some new features making it easier for people to find people you pretty much just go on there create a profile put your details you don't got to put 
anything real if people are paranoid about it. But if you want to put, you know, hey, what are you interested in learning? What skills do you have to offer? Uh, you can put your, not your home address, but just pick a park or something nearby, something close, and it adds you to our map so that when other people come and they search for their area, they can search, show me everybody in 20 miles. And then you might pop up for them. You might get a message from someone saying, hey, you seem like you have similar goals and interests. Do you want to meet up for coffee? Or, hey, we have an activist group that gets together. We have a cell that meets come connect with us. And and from there, you know, it's up to you to take it offline and, and see where it can go. And thankfully, people who are taking this serious are having some success. And we've heard from people who've met individuals through the website, and now they're homeschooling their kids together, they pulled their money out of the banks, they bought land, you know, different things. So uh, the opportunities are there for people who are really serious about trying to avoid all this insanity coming. So I encourage people to check that out. Um, and the other thing I'll mention is, you uh, the Pyramid of Power is just one of my journalistic projects that uh, I've been working on now for almost two years. And it's a 17-part documentary series that that you're featured in, Whitney, in a few different episodes. And uh, James Corbett, G. Edward Griffin, uh, Patrick Wood, a lot of really uh, intelligent people, Peter Dale Scott. And my idea with it is, was to just try to take on this whole, whole, you know, the whole big picture from education to media to medicine and all these different areas that we could focus on and try to report on it in 30 minutes or less for the Netflix bingeable generation, basically. And, uh, you know, which is quite a bit of a challenge to take these huge topics and condense them down to. We've been successful for most of them, um, keeping it under 30 minutes. And so we bring you the best information, my own original research, plus information from other documents or books that have already been put out there. And then we present solutions at the end of every episode and then present, you know, for further reading, check out this book, check out this documentary, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we're, yeah, the, when it's all said and done, we're at, we're at chapter 12 and we'll be coming out hopefully tomorrow. Um, but when it's all said and done next year, it'll be 17 episodes. And, you know, the final, as, as we progress, we're getting like a little deeper where the, the remaining episodes are going to be getting into like the pedo, the pedo class, the, you know, idea of secret societies and roundtable groups and getting deeper into some of the stuff that maybe um, might be new to some people. So that's, that can be found at the pyramid of power.net. If anybody wants to check that out, all the episodes are available for free. We've got some of them translated into Spanish. I've just got them all translated into Dutch and somebody's working on German as well right now. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, some, some of the things going on. Of course, all my work can always be found at the consciousresistance.com. So I appreciate you having me on Whitney and let me share my projects. Absolutely, Derek. Thanks for your great work and thanks for coming back on. Always, always a good time. So uh, thanks everyone for listening as well. Hopefully you'll share this. Uh, people listening will share this around so we can have, um, you know, a better understanding among, you know, the people that listen to this podcast and, and, and others about what this executive order is really about, uh, what it means for the future and all of that. So with that being said, thanks everyone for listening and catch you all next time.